by live stream. And, and if you're not part of our Elevate family, we welcome you as well. We're very honored for you to watch us this morning. And we God, believe God has a word for you. He has something transformative that's going to change you and challenge you. Come on. So we're doing a, I'm doing a teaching on diversity. And I figured it, I, through prayer, I figured the Lord was telling me to just do a message to help us all get along. Okay? Can, can we... Can we all get along. And part of the problem too is that like it's, it's important for Christians to understand that uh, we're supposed to get along with each other, right? We're not just supposed to get along with ourselves. We're supposed to get along with, our, with each other. And so this message is designed to help you hopefully understand yourself, understand the mind of the Lord and how we as believers are supposed to relate to each other. When, when there's a lot of division in the world, one of the things that sets the church apart is its unity. It's unity in its diversity. We are a city on a hill and we are a diverse city. There's a lot of diversity, diversity, not just of backgrounds, diversity of skin color, diversity of social backgrounds, but also, this is the big one, ready? Diversity of opinions. There's a lot of diversity of opinions and we don't kind of acknowledge that. And one of the things the Bible tells us is that spiritual maturity is related to unity. So one of the ways that we can understand if you're mature or not, and we're all called to grow up in Jesus, we're not supposed to say the same. If you got saved 20 years ago, you should still you should not be in spiritual diapers. You understand what I'm saying? You came to Christ 10 years ago and you're still wearing spiritual diapers. It's time to grow up. That's one of the things God calls us to do is to mature and to grow up. And there's three churches that Paul's we're going to talk about three different churches in the Bible and each one of these churches, a man named Paul, he planted these churches. And so Paul is writing to them and he's speaking very directly to them. And he's speaking to them because he knew them and they knew him. And the first church he's speaking to is in Corinth. And he says, where there's envy among you and when there's strife and there's divisions among you, you are carnal and you are not. And you are behaving like your former selves. So just a little disclaimer here for Elevate. I mean, there's, this is a beautiful church, and we have tremendous diversity here. It, tons of languages. We have people from all over South, uh, South America, Central America. We, uh, there's so many languages. We have Mandarin. We have uh, uh, Japanese. We have uh, several dialects of African uh, Afrikaans, and then so, so several uh, dialects that way. We have uh, Telugu, we have Hindi, we have every uh, tons of dialects in this churches. And one of the things the Bible shows us is in the book of Acts, and today is Pentecost Sunday, if you didn't know that, right? And in the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God fell upon the believers, it said that people from all ethnic backgrounds were there. There was a diversity of people there when the spirit fell upon them. It tells us also in the book of Revelation that when we all come before the Lord, there's going to be every tribe, every tongue, every creed. So there's going to be all kinds of people. One of the things that's reflective in the glory of the church, the beauty of the church, or even the harmony of the gospel is when there's diversity within the congregation. You can tell that the Lord is moving when there's diversity among the people. You understand that? What we shouldn't do is we shouldn't silo our churches. I realize different regions for different reasons, but you know there shouldn't be all Chinese churches, all Irish churches, all Brazilian churches, all you know Caribbean churches or Jamaican churches. We should, that's not that's not heaven. That's not how God intended it. What we tend to do is we tend to isolate ourselves and silo ourselves into echo chambers. We we want people that are just like us. And that is actually opposite of what the kingdom does. The kingdom is people not like you. That's what the word ethnic means, not like you. And the beauty of the church is reflected in how we are so different from one another, yet we're united in Jesus. We have so little in common outside of Christ, but in Christ we have all things in common. And that's the beauty of the church. And one of the things the Bible tells us is that when we divide, we're carnal. Yeah. So when we divide over things and there's no division here. So I just want to be clear. I'm not talking about some division here. I feel like the Lord was trying to instruct me to give you tools in order to deal with uh, like just hostilities of opinions and diversities of opinions that are being expressed. We live in a generation that's unlike any other. They call it the karaoke generation. Do you know why? 
Because everybody has a microphone. Everybody has a Facebook. Everybody has a Twitter. Everybody has, you know, Instagram, text messages. We all have a microphone. And not everybody uses that microphone well, do they? No. <laughs> there's a, and you realize there's diversity that was never there. Like, wow, I never saw that that was, man, we're so divided. No, those divisions have always been there. It's just they're vocalized now. Anybody can go on Facebook and make a rant, right? You can go on Twitter, say whatever you want. You can send a text message out to all your friends. You can, you know, so we're, we're in this time that's unlike any other. And spiritual maturity is demonstrated in our ability to unify in spite of differences. Jesus said, the world will know you're my disciples. How? Anybody? By the way, we love each other. By our love, agapeo. A love, a, an ability to, to, to be together and to care for one another in spite of how different we are. It's actually a spiritual power. It's a manifestation of the kingdom. The Bible says this, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. It's like oil flowing down the beard of Aaron, the priest, and all, all, all down him. It's this beautiful thing. It's this aroma, 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 aromatic, aromatic thing. I'll get it right. It's this aromatic thing that takes place when we're together. Something takes together when Christians get together. I don't know if, you're, if you know this. Like when believers get together, it's not like you and your, your buddies from your past. Right? Like the beer drinkers and hell raisers that you used to hang out with. When you're with them, it's completely different than when you're with Jesus. Or you're with Christians. When you're with Christians, there's just something that happens. We get glad to see each other for no particular reason at all. Because what's happening is, is something is coming out of us by the Holy Spirit. And it's called koinonia. And koinonia means a bonded fellowship, a bonded unity. We just get happy, you know? And you should get happy. You should, the church should encourage this type of attitude one to the other. You know, like if, if you, we really let the love flow in the room, we got a bunch of country dogs walking around shaking their tails because we're so, you ever know what a country dog is? They're all by themselves and then another dog comes around. That dog's so excited because it's, oh my gosh, it's another dog. I don't know what's going on. You know, we start acting like country dogs. It's one of the reasons why we do the little break is to give you an opportunity to just connect with each other, even if it's for a moment. You know, because we're, we, it's important that we understand that, that love is supposed to flow out of our lives one to the other. Acceptance is supposed to flow out of our lives one to the other. We're to be unified, not divided. And it's actually evidence of spiritual maturity. Eh? Spiritual maturity is not found in divisive opinions. Spiritual maturity is, fine, is the ability to unify in spite of differences. And so Ephesians says this. This is an important part. So Paul's speaking to three churches. All three of these churches he has an intimate relationship with. Two of them... The churches that he planted when he left, Ephesus and Galatia, they're now falling into legalism. So grace is now being abandoned. Love is now being abandoned in favor of doctrine. Galatia is now being deceived to go back under the law. Foolish Galatians who has bewitched you. And, if, and Ephesus began, it, it says, return to your first love. Remember that? And, and he's usually talking to the church of Ephesus. He says, you got your doctrine right, but you've lost your love. And so Ephesus had lost the love and they were keeping all the deck chairs in order and they were making sure everybody's hair was correct and making sure, you know, there was makeup or no makeup or the guys had their hair high and tight and everybody, you know, they were, they were doing, they were focusing a lot on externals. And as they were focusing on the externals, they became judgmental of one another. And they not only became judgmental of one another, the love of God stopped flowing and divisions began to get, began to come together. And so we have the guys with the short hair over here, the guys with the long hair over here, the guys with no hair over here, you know, and everybody's forming into a group and they're all pointing fingers at each other. That happened in Ephesus and it happened in Galatia and rules became established. The church became focused on external righteousness and not the love that flows from the heart and grace. They began to regard each other according to the flesh they began to look at each other and judge each other by outward appearances. And so when you read those books, Paul is correcting them. And what is he correcting? The very thing that I'm telling you. The focus on externals. You know? Yeah, externals matter. You know? Dress like a diva, you know? Or dress like a rock star. Who cares? But don't compromise that for Jesus. Jesus and diva. 
Jesus and rock star. Jesus and all of that. And so they, they began to focus on things and they began to put those things in favor of other things. And it became judgmental. Anybody experience a church like that? Anybody? No? Only me? I'm the only one? <laughs> I come out of a church. was a brilliant church. Amazing church. Taught me everything I needed to know in the beginning. I was sloppy and all over the place. This church was militant. They told me, stand up straight. Click your heels. Hup, hup. They taught me disciplines that I didn't have. But eventually as I grew... Those disciplines felt like a jacket that was too small. I felt constricted. The very thing that brought order to my life now became suffocating to me. You know? And so sometimes there's a framework that needs to be established in our lives, but we are called unto liberty. We're called unto freedom. And that freedom is the ability to love each other, the ability to care for one another. The church is unlike any other entity in the world. And we're going to talk about that. It says, endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body, one spirit, just as all of us are called into one hope, and that's Christ. One Lord, one faith, and we're all baptized into Jesus. Endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That sounds like poetry, right? The, the Bible write, reads and writes oftentimes in such a fluid way. It's very fluid when you read it. That sometimes you miss the meaning of what's actually being said. Endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Well, that sounds so cool. What the heck does that mean? The word endeavor is the Greek word spudezo. Sounds like Italian ice cream. I'll have some gelato spudezo, please. <laughs> Stracciatella. Anybody know what that is? Stracciatella. Gelato chocolate chip Italian ice cream. So the word endeavor is the word spudezo, and it means to apply yourself with commitment. So it says endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit. Endeavor, apply yourself with commitment to be unified with your brothers and sisters. Focusing not on your differences, but on the things that you can agree with. We have to make a commitment to that. We have to live that way and have that attitude towards each other. We have to endeavor. It's a journey. You understand? Endeavor, spudezo, commit yourself. It's related to the word faith. Isn't that interesting? Commit yourself in faith to keeping the unity of the spirit. In other words, you're doing it not because you want to. You're doing it because Jesus tells you to. So you're doing it by faith. I'm going to unify with this person, not because I want to. If we're honest, we really don't want to. Anybody with me? Right? Love those who hate you. Anybody feel like doing that? Anybody? Anybody at all? Right? Do good to those who do evil to you. That is not a natural occurrence to us. When people do evil to us, we want to run them over with a car. You know? You know? Plotting that vengeance. But yet the Bible tells us to do something different. The only way we do that is by the Spirit of God. We endeavor. We make a commitment to be unified. and be, Endeavor to keep the unity of the what? The Spirit. Our unity with one another is not based on externals. It's not based on nationality. Our unity with each other is based upon Christ, Jesus. As Jesus, in, we're both in Christ, we are to regard each other in light of that. You're my sister, I'm your brother. And I'm to regard you in light of that. You, this is a son of the highest who's under the lordship of his father in heaven. I'm to regard that person in light of how Jesus sees them. That's how we are to relate to one another. Keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The word bond is unity based on identity. That's what it means. The word bonded. So we are bonded together in unity based upon our identity in, in, in ourselves. You know, based upon our identity of our family ancestry. Our unity is not based upon any of that. Our unity is based upon our identity in Jesus. We are unified because we are brothers and sisters. We are unified because we are sons and daughters. That is what makes us unified. And we are to commit ourselves in the spirit to keep that bond. And it's the bond of peace. And this is where it gets really beautiful. The bond of peace. Right? So, oftentimes, the peace of God that surpasses knowledge will guard your heart and mind. You know? And the way that's explained is if we're all supposed to sit in a lotus position and just let the peace of God just move through us. Yes, the peace of God is experiential, but the peace of God is active. The word shalom means to rise and flourish. And it's speaking of a floodwater. So it's a water that rises in the land and causes the land to flourish. So when the peace of God comes to you, what God, when they say shalom, or when they say may the peace of God be with you, may the floodwaters of God cause your life to flourish. That's what it's saying. 
And so we're to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. What that means is, is that my job as your brother is to benefit your life without any expectation of return. This is where the beauty happens. So my job is to bring shalom into your life, to add value to your life without expecting anything. That's completely contrary to the way the world is. Come on. Can I get a witness? We, in the world, we judge our relationships based upon what we can get out of it or what someone can get out of you. So they're relating to you simply on the fact of, will you further my career? Right? Will you further me financially? Can I get something from you? Can I take advantage of you? Can I deceive you? You know, that's kind of how the relationships are built in, war, in the world. Based upon, I'm relating to you based upon the purpose of what I can get from you. That's why marriages fail. I, I married you because I thought you were going to meet all my needs. Good luck. You know, not going to happen. Marriage is 100% to the person and 100% from the person. That's marriage in Christ. It's an equal beneficial. That's why marriages in Christ succeed more than they fail when they're centered that way. Relationships with one another. My job is to benefit Ingrid in every way possible and without expecting anything from her. And her job, unbeknownst to me or unexpected of me, is to benefit me in every way possible to her. And so it's this community of people that are driving towards one another to mutually benefit one another. Our job together is to raise each other to the highest level. That's why Paul's saying, where you're envy and jealous, you're carnal. You're like world. You're like the world. That's not who you are. You're behaving like your former selves. What if there was a community that was constantly benefiting each other? That's why we're called the body of Christ. My hand doesn't run off here and do its own thing, does it? My hand exists to benefit the body. My feet exist to benefit the body. Every part of your body is mutually beneficial to itself. You get me? That's, this is the dynamic and this is the world that Jesus has called us into. This is where the church is designed to operate from. Unfortunately, we don't. But that's the attitude that we are to have consistently. It's to be modeled from the front. It's to be modeled one to the other. When I was an early believer and when I was a leader in a church... I was a leader and I wasn't the primary leader. I wasn't the guy, I wasn't the pastor. I wasn't standing in the front. I was an assistant pastor. And I would go to the church and, and every time, and I began to understand and, and walk in these things. And I began to pray and I made a commitment that I was not going to leave. Every Sunday I came, I made a commitment. I am not leaving until I bless somebody. I am not leaving this place. I'm going to find whoever's here that needs a word of encouragement that needs a blessing, that needs something, that needs me to pray for them. I am not leaving until that happens. My life began to change. This is what will happen with a lot of believers if we begin to operate according to the principles of unity that God has established within his word. Well, we will not come to merely benefit ourselves. That's a given. Listen, you come to church, you're going to get benefited. Right? Come on. It's like pizza. Right? Even if it's the day old, it's still good, right? Even if I burn it, you're still going to chew on it a little bit. You know what I mean? <laughs> when you come to before Jesus, you will be blessed. He is a blessing God. You come back with expectation and he's got a table prepared for you. You don't have to worry about being blessed. But what I would tell you is have the attitude to be a blessing to others. And you're going to see that your life's going to change. What's going to happen is when you give, as you give yourself away, more room for blessing is going to happen in your life. God's going to, you're going to be able to clear out the closet. Jesus wants to bless a lot of you and he wants to give you more, but he can't because you're so full of yourself. You're so full of you, what you want, what you think, what you need. Gimme, gimme, gimme. That you're so full of you that God can't give you anything because you'll never give anything else away. You don't ever empty yourself for another person, Right? The kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus said. But you know where the kingdom of heaven is? One step, it's at hand, it's within reach. But you have to step beyond convenience. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, but you have to step beyond risk. If you want to manifest the kingdom, it's not like this. You have to step out of convenience. You have to step out and into risk. You're going to bless people? Try that on. I'm in a church. I don't know everybody in the church, right? But I'm here. I'm an assistant pastor. Okay, whatever. And I'm looking for now. It wasn't a title thing for me. It was a service thing unto Jesus. I wasn't doing it because of my position in the church. I was doing it as a minister before my father. 
And everybody's a minister, in case you didn't know that. It's a kingdom of priests. You, all y'all, all y'all, you are royal priests and priestesses. All of you. Royal priests and holy nations. That's what you are. It's not one, one person in the position of ministry. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints to do what? To do the ministry. My job is preparing you. My job is helping you get your head right and helping you step into the things that God has for you. That's the goal. And so, like, it's a risk. So I would have to go and talk to someone and say, hey, man, how's it going? What's your name? Oh, my name's Tom. What's happening, man? You doing all right? Yeah, I'm doing good. You're going good. And then I'd ask the Lord, you got a word for this guy? You got a word for this guy? And I'd give him a word. I'd give him a word of encouragement. Or if somebody said to me, oh, I don't know. I'm just really having a hard time. I'd go, oh, really? What's a hard time? You know? And, and they'd say, oh, I just lost my, my mother just passed away. And, you know, and I'd listen to him a little bit and I would pray for them. And what began to happen is the glory began to manifest even brighter and even stronger in my heart. This needs to be our attitude. And, and you say, why well, I risk? What if that person doesn't want to talk to me? Then go find another one. <laughs> I'm going to give you a rule. You want a rule of ministry? I'm going to give you a rule. A rule. When in doubt, minister to the brokenhearted. There's one in every room. There's brokenhearted in here right now. There's pain in the room right now. Right now. Somewhere there's a pain point in your life and there's a point, there's a place that can be ministered to. And somewhere there's a pain point in another person's life and that's a place that you can minister to. You get it? What would happen if we became that kind of an active people? Life would come. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Oh my gosh, I go to that church. I'm always blessed. I mean, it's like, man, I got like four words, encouragement and six prayers. I'm like, whoa. (laughs) But we are to benefit each other. When I look at you, my life and my, my attitude to you is like, what, what do you want me to do to raise this person's life, Lord? What do you want me to do to benefit this person? You know, we connect each other with jobs, right? That's another thing. I hear people, I'm like, oh, you should meet so-and-so. So-and-so, over here, so-and-so, you know? I mean, it, that's a connecting point. What are you doing? You're benefiting that person. You connect the person. We're to add value to our lives, manifest the kingdom, stepping out of our convenience Stepping out of our circles and stepping into risk. We're commanded to have an attitude of servitude towards each other. We're supposed to. Right? We don't foot wash around here, but that's pretty much how it's portrayed, right? Can you imagine that? Like, Jesus, like, wash your feet, okay? Back, back in the day, you know, as I've washed your feet, you wash others' feet. Right? They all wore sandals. And they, we didn't, they didn't have pedicures back then, so you know. So not everybody's toes were pretty and, you know, they had some corns and some bunions going on and you're supposed to wash those feet. But it was a demonstration of servitude. It's hyperbole. You can literally wash each other's feet. But what God is saying is that there's no act of servitude beneath you. When it comes to serving each other, nothing should be beneath you. You should be willing to serve that person to whatever capacity you have and never look at it as being beneath you. This is the power of the church. This is what the world needs right now. They need, this needs to be emulated within the body of Christ. And the Bible says when the, when the oil begins to flow, it flows down over the body and it turns into a river going into the street. But until the oil and the water begins to flow over the body, it will never flow into the street. You know, so how does the oil and the water flow over the body? I'm telling you how it does. Agapeo, man. Loving one another, serving one another, not in, not in stupidity, but in honesty. You know what I'm saying? We don't get around and get cheesy. What can I bless you with today, brother? Hallelujah. Hallelujah, brother. Can we talk like normal people, right? You know, hey, Joe, what's going on in your life? You're doing good? Oh, man, everything's good, man. You believe in God for Oh, man, I believe in God for that. Let's pray for that. Let's, believe, let's pray for that. You know? I mean, it's just, it's just simple things like that. Simple things like that. Let me encourage you. I mean, give, give a word of encouragement. You'd be amazed how encouraged you feel when you encourage other people. Man, if you're feeling depressed, I have a solution for you. The Bible says put on the garment of praise, but I'll give you another one. Water someone else. The Bible says when we water someone else, you yourself are watered. So when you water and encourage someone else, then you walk away going, man, I feel pretty good. I feel pretty good. Sometimes you encourage a person and you're encouraged because they're in a worse spot than you. Like, hey, man, what's going on? Oh, my gosh, man. My car blew up, you know, dog ran away, cat sick, and you're like, wow, I thought I had problems. I feel feel better already. Let me encourage you. (laughs) 
But by when we encourage other people, we have an attitude of servitude towards one another. We're to serve each other. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good, but especially the household of faith. That's us. We're to do good to each other. We're to prioritize each other. Jesus said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? Those that do the word of God. Those that hear the word of God and do it. It's not, it's not the family of humanity. We're not, it's not God's sons and daughters over the earth. It's God's sons and daughters in Christ. In Christ, you're a son and daughter. Without Christ, you're God's creation. In Christ, you're a son and daughter. To those who received him, we're given the power to be called the children of God. To those who believed on his name. So the right of son and daughter does not belong to anybody but those who are in Christ. And what an honor it is. Sons and daughters of the highest. Divine royalty, eternal royalty you will be. What if this life was a training ground to prepare you to reign with him in the world to come? What if? How are you? Where are you at? Have you done anything? Has your life produced anything? To the measure that you have grown in Christ is the measure that you will rule with him. Read the parable of the talents. To the one who gained ten cities, he was gained rulership over ten cities. To the one who produced on behalf of his father, on behalf of his master, to them were given eternal rulership. All will rule. I mean, you might rule a backyard. You know, me, I want to rule from the mountain. I want to, I want to rule from his internal courts. And so the, the question to that is, how do I get that, Lord? Well, Kevin, Jesus isn't capitalism. Yes, it is. Jesus and Peter asked him, we've given everything for you. What will be given to us? Lord, we've left everything. Jesus didn't go, you capitalist pig. How dare you think of me in such terms? Jesus just looked at him and said, good, answer, good question, Peter. I say to you that whoever's given up houses, cars, boats, trains, friends, family, whatever, money, whoever's given up anything for my sake will be rewarded in this life and in the one to come. He doubles down. Jesus, whatever you do for the Lord, he is going to multiply it. The devil's a liar. The devil's a Judas. And you have to destroy the Judas voice. When you make an offering and you make a sacrifice unto Jesus, there will always be a Judas there to tell you you've wasted it. And sometimes you make a sacrifice unto the Lord and it's a family member that's a Judas that tells you, you've wasted it. Why are you giving to the church? Why are you giving to the gospel? You need that money. You've wasted it. That's a Judas. Sometimes that voice is you. You're stupid. You're arrogant. Why are you thinking, oh, that's a dumb thing to do. You think that honored God. That didn't honor God. That's a Judas. You have to get rid of the Judas voices in your life. You will never fulfill divine destiny or purpose as long as you're listening to the voice of a Judas. Every time you make an effort or a sacrifice unto God and, the Ju- and you listen to the Judas tell you you've wasted it. So the next time you go to make an offering, your hand, your hand pulls back. David said, I will, you have to have the attitude in the heart of David. I will make no offering to God that costs me nothing. David said, if I don't feel it, I'm not giving it. Or I'm going to give it until I feel it. I've given that much. Okay, I didn't feel that. I'm giving more. Oh, I felt that. Okay, we're good. That's how David gave. I make no offering that costs me nothing. Jesus at the money chambers. You guys know what I'm talking about? Guy dumps his money in. The whole crowd goes, whoa. They were doing the wave. You know, Bill Gates came in and wrote a big check and dumped it in the thing. And everybody's like, wow, they were doing the wave. Jesus wasn't impressed because he gave out of his abundance. It didn't hurt him at all to give that money. No pain in that. The widow comes and takes two pennies. And Jesus said, there it is. It's right there. It's not the amount. It was never the amount. Had nothing to do with the amount. The guy could have given a million dollars and went, and Jesus could have said, there it is. And the widow could have gone and thrown two, two, two pennies in and he could have said, it could, the, the role could be reversed easily because it's not the amount that was given. It's the heart behind the giving. It's an act of faith that my world is bound to your world. My economy lies in yours. It's faith. Faith is what moves. Currency of heaven is not need. You be, the sooner you learn that, the more advanced your life is going to become. The currency of heaven is not human need. The currency of heaven is faith. God trades in faith. He does not trade in need. That's why needy prayers don't get answered. Oh God, don't you see? Oh Jesus, look at me. Have pity on me. Have mercy. Oh God. 
No answer. And then the devil comes over you and tells you that he doesn't care. Well, of course God cares. You say, how much do we know God cares? Look at the cross, man. Look at the resurrection. Look at the spirit of God inside of you. You don't think he cares? But now it's faith. Those that come to God that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith is the currency of heaven. You must trade with the Lord in faith, and he'll make that trade every time. Every time. God was looking for a man. He made that trade with... with, Anybody know Hannah? You guys know Samuel? Was that a trade? That was a trade. Lord, if you give me a son, he's yours. Jesus is like, what? That's a trade I'm going to take. And he became, she gave, and Samuel's called asked of the Lord. And Hannah gave Samuel to the Lord. In the book of Samuel, the prophet Samuel, the first of the seers, came on the scene. Because God was looking for someone to make an offering to him. To make a step of faith. And Hannah had many children after that. She was barren. Barren, had no need. Sometimes your need is to drive you to a point of faith. Not fear, not anxiety, not woe is me. Your need is to drive you to faith, Christian. Faith. At some point, you're going to realize who you are. And you're going to say, I'm a son of the highest. I don't have to take this anymore. I refuse to live with the pigs. I refuse. My father is wealthy. My father is generous. My father is kind. Regardless of how many mistakes I make, if I will return to my father, if I will look to my father... Not in need. Oh, I'm so needy. But in faith. Come before him in faith. Break free and come before the Lord in faith. Church's strength is her diversity. Ephesians, let no, we're so we're supposed to deal with each other in ways with our attitude. We're supposed to deal with each other in our words. We're not supposed to say harsh words to each other. Okay? We speak truth, but we speak truth in love. Got me? Right? We can apply this to our text messages. We can apply this to our Facebook posts. God help us all. Let nothing come out of your mouth. Only what is good for edification that it might impart grace to the hearer. Is it spiritual power moving in love? Is this a loving thing to say? Is this something that will bring spirit or life to the person? And, I'm, and am I saying it in love? And am I saying, or am I saying something that will build the person up? Am I building them up or am I tearing them down? If you're tearing them down, you shouldn't say it. You shouldn't say it. Satan is not wise, but he's intelligent. So the way that we speak to each other is necessary. Bible says this. I'll, t- I'll quote you James. James says, everybody stumbles in every way. But if any of you do not stumble with your words, you're perfect. What does that mean? We all say stupid things. We do. The Bible says the tongue is set on fire by hell. It can be. It's a rudder. Scripture says that the tongue is the rudder that steers your life. Your words will steer your life. Your words will direct your life. It's also set in, in, in such an alignment, the Bible says, with our members that it will either bring life to the body or it will defile the body. Your words bring life to you or they bring defilement to you. Your words steer your ship. Your words, what, what was over the head of the disciples when the Holy Spirit fell on Pentecost? What, what, what did they see? What was over their head? Tongues of fire, right? So you can have a words that are set on fire by heaven, or you can have words that are set on fire by hell, and you get to choose. You get to choose. <laughs> words are tough. I'm going to tell you this. I would just give you my, my restraining method that I try to practice. I try to wait before I speak. Be slow to speak, right? That's me. I'm really slow to speak sometimes. I take weeks. <laughs> and it's not, it's not because I don't want to. It's because I'm not ready. It's because I'm not in a place where I know if I go into that environment, I'm going to demonstrate self-control. And until I feel that I can have self-control or I feel like I'm spiritually centered to have a conversation, I don't have it. I don't. Why? Because part of it is the position that I hold sometimes. And, you know, my position can do... I, I, I carry a sword, right? Everybody in ministry, eldership, whatever leadership you're in, you hold a sword. And there's three things that can happen with that sword. Four, basically, you can commit suicide with it, you know, uh, kill yourself, do something stupid. You can advance the gospel, you can hack the people to pieces, or you can stab the pastor in the back. That's like one of the four things that you can do when you're entrusted with a sword, right? We all carry the sword of the spirit. It's the same thing, right? We carry this, this ability, this position that needs to be used wisely, Wisely, You ever had somebody, you say something and they go, I thought you were a Christian. 
Anybody? Oh, you're supposed to be a Christian. Why? Because you carry a sword or a title that people look at and judge you right or wrong. Sometimes it doesn't matter because people are always looking for an excuse. But, you know, but you, sometimes you need to be slow to speak on that stuff. Satan's number one tactic is division. That's his tactic. The Holy Spirit is working for unity. The devil is working for division. What does he divide us over? Ethnicities, doctrine, economics. Oh, here we go. Ready for this one? Politics. Yep. Anything he can do to get a division into the church, anything he can do to get a division among brothers and sisters, he does it. Divides you from the Lord. That's his whole point. He's not wise, but he's intelligent and strategic. What you need to know about Satan? He's not wise. He doesn't make wise choices. But he does make intelligent choices, and he does make strategic choices. So he is intellectually dividing or, or coming up with an intelligent plan, and then he's intellectually coming up with, a, with, a, with an intelligent strategy, but he doesn't always act in wisdom. What the devil does is he always overplays his hand. No matter what the enemy does, if you'll trust the Lord, Satan will always act foolishly. And the momentum that he uses against you will always be turned against him if you'll trust the Lord, because he doesn't act in wisdom. He doesn't. His plans are sophisticated, make no doubt. Anybody ever been attacked? Like, wow, this is a flipping sophisticated one, man. I've never, come on, you ever had something happen to you and you're like, wow, it just seems like this was planned. It seemed like somebody set these pieces in place. And as soon as he, and then something was set in motion and it just hit you out of nowhere. Have you ever had that happen? No? If you haven't had that happen, then you're not much of a threat to him. It's true. I say this all the time. Christians that don't believe in the devil, they don't believe because you're no threat to him. He doesn't need to bother you because you're not doing anything. You're doing exactly what he wants you to do. Nothing. The kingdom suffers violence. When you begin to advance the kingdom, then you're going to experience opposition. But so long as you're on your own selfish agenda, but I'm a Christian, it doesn't matter. You can be on your own selfish agenda. The devil's never going to bother you. He doesn't need to. He doesn't need to. (laughs) You're no threat. He only attacks what threatens him. Right? What he perceives as his territory is being, when he perceives his territory being threatened, that's when he attacks. We unite on based on Jesus. We set our things on things above. We're not to think according to this world. Our viewpoints are not to be based upon cultural viewpoints. I'm going to give you worldview. But I say this with me. Christian, Christian worldview. You're going to see the world based upon your filters. You're going to have an attitude, a mindset, and a thinking process based upon your filters. What the Bible tells us to do is to be transformed by what? The renewing of our mind. Our thinking has to come in line with heaven's thinking. Not your past, not the political or social or whatever conveniences of the culture. We're not to think according to the concourses of this world. We're to think according to the rivers of heaven. Our mind, what we think and what we value is is supposed to be the same things that God values. We are to love what he loves and hate what he hates. That's the call of the believer. We are to love what he loves and what does God hate? Well, these six things, yes, seven God hates. He hates sin, number one. He hates a proud look. He hates a lying tongue. He hates uh, those who are quick to shed blood. He hates uh, violence. It's one of the things he hates. He hates division and those who, who, who he hates division and those who stir up strife among brothers and sisters. Those are the things he hates. And so, what what does he love? So we're supposed to support what God cares about. What does God care about? Psalm eighty nine fourteen says it tells us tells it for us, right? So it tells us what God cares about. So our job, regardless of the governments of the earth, we are under the government of heaven. Our job is to bring the government of heaven into the earth. That's our job. In supernatural terms and in practical terms, in the way that we think, act, and believe. Our, it doesn't, so in a world where everybody has an opinion, everybody, we, everybody's got to be heard. Well, let's just pass the microphone around. Everybody's got to be heard. You know what heaven says? Your opinion doesn't matter. Yep. Your opinion doesn't matter. Jesus doesn't care what you think. I know that's offensive, but let me tell you who he is. He's the rock of offense. Jesus is the rock of offense. And you know what he tells you? I don't care what you think. You are to conform to my thinking. You are to take your mind and begin to think like me. The way you think doesn't matter. That's offensive. Oh my gosh. What do you mean? I I think your opinion doesn't matter. There's only one opinion that matters and that's Jesus's. What you think about yourself is irrelevant. That's good news. 
The only thing that matters is what Jesus thinks about you. And what does he think about you? You're a daughter. You're a son. What does he think about you? You're a son of the highest. You know, you're called with a purpose. You're created on purpose with a purpose. That's how he views you. Do you view yourself that way? If you don't, then you're not aligned with heaven. That's just one thing. The way we view the world, not only the way we view ourselves, is to be aligned with heaven. I am a son of the highest. I'm created on purpose with a purpose. I have a mission in this world. I'm an heir of this world and the one to come. I know exactly who I am. There's no question in my mind who I am. I know who's in authority. I know who's in spiritual authority. And the devil's not. I am. I am. The devil doesn't tell me what time it is. That's not the way this game is played. I've been in this game too long. Most Christians will. I don't even know. I, you know. I mean, you let, you let circumstances dictate to you. You let the enemy come and pilfer your land over and over and over and over again. Like Gideon, you're eating grain in a wine press. You're in the wrong place, doing the wrong thing, because the enemy has been ravaging your land, and you're huddling down there in fear. And the angel shows up and says, man of valor. The angel called out his identity. And when he did, Gideon's looking over his shoulder. Who's talking to me? Gideon was always a man of valor. Even when he was eating grain in a wine press. Even when he was in the wrong place doing the wrong thing, he was always a man of valor. He was always a son. He was always the one in authority. He was always the one that had the power over the enemy that was ravaging him. And God took Gideon, didn't even put a sword in his hand. He put a light pot in a stick. And he said, I'm going to show you the degree of your power. You have authority over these enemies. You don't need to draw the sword. Strike the pot. Release the light. And give a war cry. Right? They had authority. Children of Israel coming out of Egypt. They had authority over Jericho. There was no wall that could stand before them. None. And God made them dance around the wall for seven days. They blew the shofar. And what did they do? Anybody know? They gave a shout. God said, I'm going to show you the degree of the authority that you carry. You have this authority over all powers been given unto me, Jesus said. Now, therefore, go. I'm handing you the baton. I have the power. I have the authority. You're in me. Take my authority and use it. Most Christians have no clue what they have. No clue. Completely blind. Enemy steals from you all day long. Sitting on your couch with his feet up, changing the channels on you. Switching your mind all over the place. And you're serving him Doritos. (laughs) You welcome him. You have no idea that you have no, no understanding that you have the authority to get rid of that thing. You, you treat it like it's something that's been around for a long time. And most people, it's called a familiar spirit. People have familiars. You know what's familiar? Because you're familiar with it. You can't let it go because you're familiar with it. Well, I'm used to being depressed. It's familiar to me. I, you see, Kevin, I've been depressed since I was six years old. Sometimes I'm not. But when everything goes bad, I just go and, I just go and put my arms around depression you know, and get a warm fire. We identify with it. Oh, I'm just depressed. That's who you are? That's your identity? A depressed person? That's how you choose to... Would Jesus look at you and go, woof, depressed? Wow. Train wreck, man. Wow. But this is what we do as people. Not not knowing who we are, not knowing what he has said, identifying ourselves with lies, putting our arms around things, buying into things that are not of his will. Selling our birthright. Making and trading our inheritances for lies. This is what we do. And it will go on until you make it stop. Well, God's going to see it one day and he's going to set me free. He's already set you free. You have the authority. He will ravage you until you take your positional authority. Until it's enough. Until you said, it, I've had it. When are you going to, well, when are you going to say it? How do you know this works? Because I've used it my whole life. My whole life. I had a guy tell me recently, he said, you need to make the devil too expensive to deal with you. And I said, absolutely. You steal from me, you're paying me back sevenfold. So next time you're thinking of stealing from somebody, you're going to look at me and they're going to go, uh, no, not that guy. He's too expensive. Every time he, we steal from him, he figures it out and we have to give him back sevenfold. That's what the Bible says. A thief, when he is found out, must restore sevenfold. There's threefold blessing. There's double portion. There's sevenfold blessing. And there's a hundredfold blessing. I'm working on a seven. And when I get the seven coming back to me, I'm going for the hundred. Where's your faith? No, seriously, where's your faith? Where's your faith? What do you believe for? What do you stand on? Do you believe God for anything? Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Faith is not just this static belief. I believe, I have faith, therefore I'm pleasing to God. Faith is a forward motion. Yeah. 
Faith is a forward motion of your life. It's not a position that you stand in, rock back and forth. I believe God's happy with me. No, faith is forward motion, people. Our viewpoint is to be based upon two things, righteousness and judgment, or justice. The Bible says, Psalm 89, righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. So how are we to view the world? What are we to agree with? Righteousness, say it with me, righteousness is what is right to God. So we are to agree and to work for what is right to God, not what is right to the government, not what is right to the church, not what is right to a culture. This is where the church becomes compromised and diluted because we have the mind of the world. We operate in the church culture. Whatever the church thinks is right is what we go with or whatever the world thinks is right. It doesn't matter what your denomination says. If your denomination contradicts the scripture, it's irrelevant. What is right to the Lord? That's what we line our lives with. doesn't matter what I think. doesn't matter what I believe. doesn't matter. doesn't matter. I have a lot of questions when I came to Jesus. I share this story many times. And if you've had an abortion, I don't want you to feel negative on that. Because that's not where we're going with this. It's under the blood. You can be forgiven. But the point was, when I came to Christ, I didn't think abortion was wrong. I didn't. This is where I was at. Anything was wrong. And I said, well, I don't know. I don't think it is. But I'm going to just shut up until I know a little more. That would do this generation a lot of good is if people would just shut up until they knew a little more but everybody speaks out of stupidity speaks out of ignorance you know why don't we shut up until we actually know a little more and so i would shut up until i was educated on it what would happen is god showed me in his word it's in the bible they would worship a god called astaroth and the god astaroth was sexual promiscuity sexual adventure Love the one you're with. Do whatever you want. And so when they would, when they would worship Astaroth, Astaroth was a pole. And they would do, this is literally what went on, they would do orgies around the Astaroth pole. And inevitably, they would have unwanted pregnancies. Someone would get pregnant. No problem. Problem solved. The god Molech was a god that was a bronze god, and they would heat the bronze so hot, and they would throw the babies into the arms of the bronze god on fire, and they would watch the baby. The priests would, priests of Molech would watch the baby as it burned, and they would read sooth. They would soothsay. That's one way they did it. Another way, they would chop the baby up. They would cut the baby, a live baby, they would cut the baby up. Sound familiar? I don't know if you're familiar with how abortion works at all, but they cut the baby up, or they inject saline, or they release a chemical that literally burns the baby to discard it out of its mother's womb. Sound familiar? It's the same God, it's the same law, it's the same devil. This isn't earthly things we're talking about here. This is spiritual things. There is a demonic presence behind it. You get it? And so when God began to reveal that to me, that Kevin is Astaroth, and Kevin is Molech, and it's the gods of the culture. That's what you're bowing down to, the gods of the culture. I'm like, I renounce that. I don't want anything to do with that. And the Bible says if you did it in ignorance, then God winks at it. But now he commands repentance. Whatever you've done and you didn't know, the Bible says these times of ignorance the Lord overlooks. Your times of stupidity, he just goes, okay, you were stupid. You didn't know anything. You didn't know any better. And the Bible says he overlooks it. But now he commands you to a position of repentance. Now he commands you to change your mind and change your perspective. That's what repentance means. So your ignorance is gone. Forget about it. It's over with. Wow, I didn't know that. Well, now you do. It's okay. It's all good. Ignorance is over. But now you're supposed to change your mind and you're supposed to view the world in light of what is right to him. And we're supposed to view the world in what is just. What is justice? Ready? We're all going to be acquainted with this word justice, but it's important that the believer knows what it is. Right? Say it with me. Justice is the right use of power. That's what justice is. Right? So injustice, such as what happened to this man Floyd, that's unjust, right? This is a person endowed with power and we can all agree that that guy that had the power didn't use his power correctly, right? doesn't matter what the guy did, you know? I don't care what he did. You don't treat somebody like that. You don't treat a human being like that. You just don't do that. I mean, you wouldn't treat a dog that way, you know, let alone a man, right? So regardless of what he did, the way that he was treated was not just. Why? Because there was a person in power over him that abused his power upon him. You get the picture? This is what God is for. God, when God says justice, what he is meaning is the right use of power. 
So it says to us, it says to his people that you would lift up your voice for justice. And people, I've had Christians years say, well, we're supposed to lift up our voice for justice. I'm, yeah, what's justice mean? What does it mean? Is it justice as you understand it? Or is it justice as God says? What we're crying out for is that power would be used correctly. That our police would treat people correctly. That our courts would treat people correctly. That there wouldn't be injustices in positions and places of power that our government and our elected officials wouldn't take bribes and line their pockets and become rich off of a position that was given to them by the people. That's injustice. It's injustice. So what God is calling us to do is to be is to call for the right use of power. And we're not just supposed to call for it. We're supposed to be agents of change. I feel like there's somebody here and maybe you're watching. But I feel like God was telling me that there are people in this church that need to run for office. I feel the glory on me as soon as I say that. There are people in this church that need to run for office. I'm not talking about Senate. School board is very easy to get elected to. You get elected to the school board on less than 2,000 votes, a lot of these guys do. No, seriously. There are people that have been elected to the school board on 900 votes. Right? City commissioner. Maybe you're not going to get on Miami City Commission, but can you get on Homestead? Can you get on Cutler Bay? Can you get on Hialeah? You live in Hialeah. You live in uh, Westchester. Oh, Little Havana. Can you run for Little Havana? Right? You see what I'm saying? So we're not just to lift up our voice for justice. We're to become agents of change in the arena of justice. We are to bring justice into places where there is no justice. The restoration of foundations, the restoration of wounded cities... And I felt like when I was praying the last couple of days, the Lord was telling me there are people that in this church that need to run for office. And I'm like, what? And I felt like school board, you know, city commission. I'm like, oh, okay. And, you know, when you say you're going to run for the Senate, you're like, what? I don't know about that, man. I don't know, you know. But you can do something locally. You can affect change locally. It's possible. And you can be a voice of justice in a place where there is no justice. You can actually put your hands on the levers of power that bring change about. You understand that? It's one thing to talk about justice. It's another thing to actually put your hands on it and be able to maneuver the power yourself. Not for you, but for the Lord. I'm going to keep moving. I definitely want to do this one point. This is so cool. I just have to say this. So anyway, do you get me when I'm talking about righteousness and justice? We are to care about what God cares about. And we are to flow and use our power rightly. I said this to first service. You have power, right? Acts chapter, Acts chapter, two, you sh- or Acts chapter 1, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses, right? So we have power. Ready? Hold the chair. When you do not witness, you are not using your power correctly. When you do not witness and share Christ with people, you are actually operating in injustice. It is the wrong. You, You have power and you're not using it. Power is, justice is both the abuse of power and it's the negligence of power. It's unjust in, in, it's unjust in Minnesota. It's unjust what happened to Floyd. But it's unjust to have those, men's, those people's businesses burned like that. It's unjust to have leaders that operate in apathy, that do nothing, and simply watch while this happens. What happened to the man was completely wrong. But to let other people be victimized in, in light of all of that, that's equally wrong. Two wrongs don't make a right. Just saying you know, I get it. There's rage. There's a lot of pent up anger. You wonder why everybody's erupting? Because we've been locked down for three months. You know what I'm saying? They wonder why everybody's exploding. Because they've had them on lockdown for three months. And they're just like, boom. You know, burn it. Oh, turn the car over. What are we riding for? We don't know. We're just doing it. You know? Some people don't even know. They're just like getting out the latent rage that they've been feeling for the last four months. <laughs> Feel good. What'd you do that for? I don't know, man, but it felt good. I don't know. But apathy is also an, is also an unjust use of power. So we, we, so here, watch this. So I want to talk just a minute about pop political, right? Because this is really a weapon that the enemy is using in the church today to divide people. Political views. Ready? Say this with me. I'm going to offend you all. Everyone's going to be offended. I'm an equal opportunity offender. I just want to let you know that. So is Jesus. He's the rock of offense. Say it with me. The church is not Democrat. What? The church is not Republican. The church is not Libertarian. The church is not Socialist. The church is kingdom. Mm-hmm. 
The only government that matters is kingdom government. And so what does God support? He he supports any position that emulates his government. God supports justice when justice is manifested through regardless of the party. God supports righteousness when righteousness is manifested through regardless of whatever party is, is, is doing it. So you understand it's, it's, not about, it's not about political because politics puts their faith in men, right? And look, I get it. Politics, it's a mess. I understand it. It's a mess. But what we divide over is opinion. And usually that opinion relates to somebody on one side saying something that's right. This is right. This is right. And somebody on the other side saying something that's right. And you say, well, God is for this. Yes, he is. God is for this. Yes, he is. Well, then God is for this group. No, he's not. The God is for this group. No, he's not. God is for his kingdom. This is what he is. And we as his people are called to bring about his kingdom. We are called to agree with and bring forth his kingdom. That's why I said, I, I got in trouble. But I said, when you see godliness in the public office, a demonstration of Jesus Christ... As a Christian, regardless of your viewpoint, you need to support that. I'm sorry. I don't care. You know, people go, oh, I don't know. You know, if you don't like the person. So if you see President Obama talking about Jesus Christ, support it. If you see Bill Clinton, George Bush, or wait for it, Donald Trump supporting Jesus Christ, regardless of how you feel about the person, you have to say amen to that. Do you understand that? When they do righteousness, regardless of whether you like the person or not, you have to agree with it because it is right before the Lord. When they bring forth justice, whether you agree with the person or not, you have to support it because it's right before the Lord. This is how the Christian has to think. We don't think in light of our personal preferences. You're entitled to personal preferences. You all, you like blue, somebody likes pink. Another person likes green. Another person likes yellow. Somebody likes mauve. Most of us don't even know what mauve is. Right? We all have different viewpoints. I understand that. You're entitled to your viewpoint. I'm not saying you're not. But what I am saying is that we should not divide over the viewpoint. Ready for this? Watch this. Anybody know Matthew in the Bible? Matthew? Right? What was his real name? Anybody know? Levi. Right? Matthew's name was Levi, which means he was a Levite, which means he was a priest. So here we have a priest of the Lord who gets rid of his position and sits at a tax table. I'm almost done. Sits at a tax table. So he sells out God and goes to work for the, quote, oppressive government. Right? I believe he, didn't, I believe he had enough of the hypocrisy. He didn't want anything to do with hypocrisy. I truly believe that's why Matthew quit. As soon as he saw Jesus, he gave up the table. But he gave up his faith or his spiritual position and worked for the oppressor because I believe he was sick of the hypocrisy that he saw. As soon as he saw the real deal, he gave up the table. So we have Matthew, who would be considered a traitor to the Jews. Then we have another guy named Simon, not Simon Peter. My point here is completely opposite political views. Simon the Zealot. Anybody ever heard of him? The word zealot, watch this. The word zealot means militant. So Simon is a militant Jew, right? He's not only a militant Jew, he's a Hasidim. The word Hasidim means enlightened devotee. So he's a militant and enlightened devotee to Judaism. And zealots were trained as Sicarios. That's a Hebrew word. Some of you are like, yeah, that's that movie, man. Sicario. Right? It means assassin. And so zealots were trained Sicarii. There was a sect of Jews called Sicarii. And they were closely linked to the zealots. So here you have Simon who is a zealot. He is a militant, enlightened devotee who's trained as an assassin. The word Sicario means countermeasure, which means weapon. He's trained as a weapon. He's not trained to kill people. He's trained to be a weapon, right? Like your pinky. Like I could kill you right now with my pinky, man. I'm a weapon, right? So this guy is militant, enlightened devotee who's literally trained as a weapon and he's in the same camp with Matthew. Do you not think they had opposite political views? No, just let's think about that. This dude's working for Rome. With Simon, they took blood oaths to kill traitors. You see Paul? You might know Paul. They took an oath to what? To kill him. Why? Because they perceived him as a traitor to Judaism. And so there was a group of men that took an oath and said, that dude's dying. What the Sicarii would do, what the zealots would do, is they would take blood oaths and say, that dude's dying. That dude, that tax collector, yeah, I've had my eye on him for a long time. You think there was some interesting conversations around the campfire between those two? 
I feel like Matthew slept with his eye open. Just keeping one eye on, on Simon over there, man. Waiting for a fellowship hug, you know? Simon going to give him a fellowship hug and stick a knife in him. Okay? Come on, Matthew, let's fellowship hug. I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm good. We're good. My point is, completely, radically different political points of view that became irrelevant when they united around Christ. You understand that? I believe in time as they walked with Jesus, their views became more associative and they began to grow together and understand it from God's perspective. They weren't always divided, but they were for a time. You understand that? It doesn't mean that you don't have an opinion. It means it's not something we divide over. This is important. In a very charged world, we're charged on every level. This thing is like, it's like charged. We need to emulate what's right. Focus on what's right. I'm done. I'm almost done. Last thing. So, Paul spoke to Corinth. He spoke to Ephesus. He speaks to Galatia. Galatia is a church that's falling back into legalism. Right? So, Galatia has experienced the Lord. They've experienced power. And now they're saying, well, we got to make sure that the women wear dresses that are really long. And we got to make sure that the guys wear suits and cut their hair really short. And, you know, and we got to make sure that all of our externals are right, you know, and we got to make sure that all these things are in place. And they were falling into legalism. And Paul's telling this church, as he did Ephesus, that the outward means nothing. It's okay to be good outwardly, but don't let that be a replacement for what's going on inwardly. The outward means nothing. And so they were putting all this emphasis on smoking, drinking, and chewing, and hanging out with those that are doing. And Paul's like, that's irrelevant. It's a persuasive deception. That's dece- it's, you're being deceived by persuasiveness. And they're like, but we want to keep the law, Paul. We want to keep the law. And Paul says this to them. You want to keep the law? This is the summary. He goes, I'm summarizing you the book of Galatians in 45 seconds. And so Paul says, Paul says to them in, in, in the sixth chapter, he says, if you want to keep the law, let me tell you. He said, this is how the law is, is, is kept. That you bear the burdens and that you love your neighbor as yourself. He says, you guys want to keep the law? You want to put yourself under a burden? Let me give you that burden. Love the unlovable. Be kind to the ones that don't deserve kindness. Unify with people you don't agree with. Find common ground and agree with. That's what he's telling them. It's like, you want a law? Forget all that other stuff. I'll give you the real burden. You guys like burdens? That's what he's telling them. Y'all like burdens? Y'all like legalism? You want to put yourself under a constraint? Here's the real constraint. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Love the unlovable. He tells them to not be conceited, not believe their own opinion. Right? Don't be conceited. How'd you like Jesus to tell you that? Stop being conceited, Kevin. What? You believe your opinion is the only one that matters. (laughs) Stop provoking and attacking people. Ouch! What? I like it. Stop it. Stop it. (laughs) Love your neighbors yourself. He says, biting and devouring each other will consume you. We start bickering and biting at each other over stupid things. We ourselves get consumed. So in divisive times, what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to unite in Jesus. There's more in common than we have against us. We're supposed to benefit each other and love each other. And that that should be a model to the world. We're supposed to ready? This is a good one, too. I love this one. Be patient. I'm almost done. I'm right there. Right there. Hold on. I'm, not, I'm a little early. This is good. <laughs> We're to be patient with one another. And the Bible says, be patient. Say it with me. Be patient. Come on. You're gonna help. I'm going to help you. Say it at home. Be patient with one another. Tenderhearted. Right? That kind of puts it in perspective. Be patient with people and be tenderhearted. But I would say this to you. The first person you need to be patient with is yourself. Be patient with yourself. Say this. I'm not perfect. I have done the best that I could in the circumstances that I found myself in with the tools that I have. That doesn't mean that what I have done is right. But it means I can understand it. And if I can understand it, I can forgive it. So I forgive myself. You get it? That's how it works. That's a little snapshot of inner healing. If you ever know what inner healings are, that's involved in inner healing. <laughs> we learn to forgive ourselves. Be patient with yourself. You did the best you could. That's it. And if you're patient with yourself, you'd be amazed how patient you can be with others. 
If you're tender-hearted towards yourself, you'd be amazed how tender-hearted you can be towards other people. We tend to treat people the way we treat ourselves. So when people are wicked and cruel to you, you need to realize that they're probably wicked and cruel to themselves. That's just the truth. You know, sometimes we have a bad day, so, you know, that, that happens too, right? We all have a bad day, right, don't we? Right? You know what happens when I have a bad day? I always tell myself, something good's happening. Something good's happening. I reverse the polarity, you know? I'm like, nah, bad day. Nope, something good is happening. God is on the move. Something good's happening. I go to the mirror and I tell myself, the revolution is on. Revolution is on. Remember, we told the psalm where we told you to talk to yourself. You got to go to the mirror and talk. You guys, need to ha- you guys all need to put up in your house a talk to myself mirror, you know? Hadassah, what's that mirror for? Why is that mirror in that place? Oh, don't look in that mirror. That's my talk to myself mirror. <laughs> That's the mirror where you go, listen up. This is what's going on. You're not going to quit. It's not over. Jesus never told you it's over. Buck up. You are a lasty girl. Pull yourself together. You have to talk to yourself, encouraging yourself in the Lord. You got to tell yourself, if you don't encourage you, no one else is going to. Jesus is the greatest encourager in the world. You want to practice prophetic? Practice prophetic on yourself in the mirror. Lord, who do you say, who, who do you say I am? You're a son of the highest. Then I say, you're a son of the highest. You're called with a purpose, with a purpose, you know, and you'll be amazed at how God will just start talking to you and you start saying the things of heaven and you start speaking the things of heaven over your life. That's right. You need to practice it. He'll say loved. You are loved. I don't care what you think about yourself. You are loved. Jesus says you're loved. I'm telling you, man. We're to be positive influence of change in our work with our words and actions. So rather than biting and divisive, why don't we look at our say is and look, I get provoked a lot, right? I've had to learn from my wife, and my wife has taught me, Kevin, what you say is really strong. You need to use it a lot better than the way you're using it. Anybody like to blast out Facebook posts every now and then? Anybody? Right? I see things and it provokes me, and I'm like, no! Usually as it relates to the church. Somebody does something that I'm just like, ugh. And so I, I try to say it intelligently, and I always put a rule on it. Is what I'm saying encouraging? Is what I'm saying clear? Is what I'm saying transformative? Or is what I'm saying critical, demeaning? Or am I simply trying to posture? And if you kind of filter what you're saying, it's not an issue of not saying something. It's saying something correctly. That's the deal. All right? Amen. I pray this helped you. I pray this helped you. I pray this helped you at home. We love you. We miss you. We bless you. All those who watch our stream, we honor you. And so we're going to pray over you one more time. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you in every way. And may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name. God loves you. We love you. Have a wonderful week. Amen.